welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on June 12th, Lord's Day Service. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have commanded us to believe in Jesus. May we flee to no other refuge May we wash in no other fountain, and may we build on no other foundation other than the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've documented how in this section of Mark's gospel, Jesus is helping the spiritually blind disciples to see. Their blindness is because they are glory-confused. They are trapped by a small-minded glory. An example of a small-minded glory is winning the lottery. If you think winning the lottery is the highest high, the greatest thing that you can imagine, then you too, just like the disciples, are trapped by a small-minded glory. And so to rescue the disciples from their blindness, from their confusion, Jesus reveals to them his transcendent glory. And so look with me here in verse 2. It says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. So the Greek word for transfigured is metamorpho. And from it we get our English word metamorphosis. And so as Peter, James, and John look on, the human appearance of Jesus is, for a moment, changed. But changed into what? Well, look at verse 3. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And you might remember that Moses, in the Old Testament, had a similar incident. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, Moses came down from the mountain with the two new tablets of the law. And you'll remember, his face shined. 
Moses' face shined because he reflected the glory of God. And we see this description here in verse 3 of Jesus, how he is radiant, intensely white. And so Jesus here shines too. But the difference was that Moses was reflecting the glory of God. And Jesus is the glory of God. And so Jesus here is transfigured. Jesus is changed for a moment into his natural heavenly appearance. And so in this moment, Peter, James, and John are able to witness the radiant glory of Jesus Christ, the heavenly glory of Jesus Christ. And of course, after this moment, Peter and John go on to write epistles and a gospel in John's case. And both Peter and John mention this moment in their writings. For example, consider Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. He talks about this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to his description. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very noise, or excuse me, this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter describes this event in 2 Peter chapter 1, and he says they were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ. And so in this moment, they are seeing the majesty of Christ, where Christ is receiving the honor and glory of God the Father. John also writes about this event in his gospel. In John chapter 1 verse 14, he mentions the Mount of Transfiguration. This is what he says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says we have seen his glory, and he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. They have seen Jesus transfigured into his heavenly glory. And so just how important is this event for Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, witnessing Jesus' glory. Well, you have to see that this event has a monumental effect on these three disciples. And remember, when God came to earth in the form of a man, when God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, he took the form of a servant. This is told to us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And so Jesus' physical appearance was such that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, he had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, we're told in Isaiah 53. And so this is what Peter, James, and John and the other disciples had seen of Jesus, a man acquainted with grief, a man whose physical appearance had no form of majesty. Jesus, to them, in the course of their day-to-day -day living, looked like an ordinary fellow in his appearance. And that's all Peter, James, and John had seen of Jesus up until this point. Of course, they'd seen the miracles, they'd seen the powerful teaching, they'd seen the authority of Christ. But he did it all housed in that human body, that ordinary human body. 
Up until this point, the disciples had been veiled to the clear and true glory of Jesus. But here on the Mount of Transfiguration, they are witnesses to Jesus' true divine glory. They are witnesses to Jesus' heavenly glory. They get a glimpse of who Jesus really is. Because, as you know, Jesus is so much more than an ordinary looking fellow. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the King of heaven and earth. And here they get a glimpse of what that kind of glory looks like. And, of course, Peter and John go on to write about it. Because on the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ doesn't just reveal his glory to Peter, James, and John. Christ here is revealing his glory to all of humanity through the writings of Peter and John. And so Jesus is showing them his glory, but he's showing you his glory. He's showing all of the world his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so maybe you read the Bible, maybe you read the New Testament, and maybe you are skeptical. Maybe you have doubts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Maybe you have doubts that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Well, if that's you, then I present to you two eyewitness accounts from those who knew Jesus best. They caught a glimpse of Jesus' heavenly glory, and they have told us about it. And they have believed it so much, with so much conviction, that they went to their deaths because of the glory they had seen. And so as we consider the Mount of Transfiguration, we also have to notice that there are parallels between the transfiguration of Christ and the Old Testament. And Mark, the author, works extra hard to force the readers to look back into the Old Testament and see how Christ fulfills it. And so, for, for example, notice the inclusion of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because it's not just that Jesus is transfigured into his heavenly glory, it's that he's transfigured into his heavenly glory, and then he proceeds to have the greatest conversation in the history of the world. A conversation between Jesus in his heavenly glory and Moses and Elijah. So look with me here in verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So here it is, Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus as he's transfigured into his heavenly glory. And of course, it's fitting that it's Moses and Elijah that are here with our Lord during the transfiguration because each of them had a vision of the glory of God on a mountain. Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24 and Elijah on Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19. And it's also fitting that they're here with Jesus because also... Both Moses and Elijah left no known grave, just like our Lord. But in addition to all that, you may also recall that Moses and Elijah are mentioned together in the closing verses of the Old Testament, at least as it's arranged in the English uh, Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. 
Listen to it. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so here, as the Old Testament is coming to a close, we see both Moses and Elijah mentioned. And, and what is mentioned in connection to Moses? What well, says in Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules. And so, Moses is associated with the law, which is good and right, because when you think of Moses, you probably also think of the law. It's the Mosaic law. It's the, it's the Mosaic covenant. And we also see mentioned Elijah. And what is mentioned about Elijah? Well, we're told in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that it's Elijah the prophet. And so, here we have Moses and the law, along with Elijah and the prophets appearing with Christ during the transfiguration to testify that the law and the prophets, the law represented by Moses, the prophets represented by Elijah, the law and the prophets bear witness to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. There's another parallel between the transfiguration in the Old Testament that you see in verse 7 about how the cloud overshadowed them. It says in verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, do you remember any Old Testament passages that talk about a cloud in this way? Perhaps you remember Exodus chapter 24 when Moses goes up Mount Sinai and the cloud of the Lord covered the mountain for seven days. And in that passage, in Exodus chapter 24, what is the cloud associated with? Well, in Exodus 24 verse 16, we're told that the cloud is associated with the glory of God. And in the Old Testament, the cloud symbolizes the glory of God. It symbolizes the covering of the divine presence, protection, and authority of God. And it's not just Exodus chapter 24. It's Exodus 13, Exodus 16, Exodus 19, and Exodus 33, where you see the glory cloud of the Lord. And here we see a cloud overshadowed them. This cloud overshadows Jesus, Elijah, and Moses here on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. And we understand that that means something. This is not really a weather event in that way. No, this is a theological event. There's meaning packed into the cloud. We understand that the cloud symbolizes the glory of God. It symbolizes the covering of God's protection, presence, and authority over his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we see those Old Testament parallels with the Mount of Transfiguration, and we see how this is heavily associated first with the, the glory of Christ being transfigured, but then the glory cloud of God coming over it, we then have to realize that there is meaning here that we need to reflect on, namely, what exactly is the meaning of Jesus' glory? Because that's what this passage is. This passage is about Jesus' glory, the revelation of Jesus' glory. And so what is the meaning of Jesus' glory? And I want you to consider that the transfiguration event 
highlights the fact that the glory of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus are the same thing. The Mount of Transfiguration highlights the fact that the glory of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus are inseparable. And I mean that Jesus' glory is seen most clearly in his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. And there are at least two things in this passage that point us in that direction. The first in verse 4, when Moses and Elijah talk to Jesus. Look at it again. It says, There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, wouldn't you love to know what they talked about? And while Mark doesn't tell us the content of the conversation, and Matthew doesn't tell us the content of the conversation, Luke, in his account of the transfiguration, does give us some hint as to the content of this conversation. In Luke's telling of the transfiguration, he tells us something of what they talked about. Listen to it. It's Luke chapter 9, verse 31, when Luke writes, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So there it is. That's the conversation. What did they speak about? Well, they spoke of Jesus' departure, which was about to happen at Jerusalem. That is to say, they spoke of the impending suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so think about this. Here you have Jesus transfigured into his heavenly glory, and as he is transfigured into his heavenly glory, he takes that moment to talk about his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. Why? Why would Jesus, as he's transfigured into his majestic glory, take that opportunity to talk with Moses and Elijah about his departure? And the answer is, as I said before, the answer is that the glory of Jesus, as symbolized in the transfiguration, and the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus as the thing Jesus spoke to them about in Mark chapter 9, verse 4, those two things are inseparable. You cannot separate the suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ from the glory of Christ. How incredible that in the moment he reveals his heavenly glory, in that moment he's emphasizing his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. And again, think back to Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses on Mount Sinai with God in Exodus chapter 33. Remember, he could not look directly at God's glory. Moses saw God's back, but not his face, we're told in Exodus chapter 33, verse 23. But now on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, Moses is there. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, now Moses sees God's face because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And when Moses sees Jesus, Jesus tells him that he is going to suffer, die, be raised from the dead, and ascended to be with the Father for the salvation of his people. And so, as we consider the meaning of Jesus' glory, we see the fact 
that the glory of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus are inseparable, first in the conversation that happens between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And we see this connection between the suffering and glory of Jesus, secondly, through the intentional context of three divinely inspired authors. See, the transfiguration account appears in all, this, all of the synoptic gospels. It appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in each of the gospels, it presents it in the context of Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection. In each synoptic gospel, you have this pattern. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. Then there's the transfiguration. And then Jesus foretells his death and resurrection again. That same pattern happens in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Surely this has significance. And I think this significance is highlighted for us in verse 7. When it says, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Well, listen to him about what? Well, listen to him when he tells you, as he did in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Listen to you when he tells you that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Listen to him. Remember, that's part of the confusion of the disciples. Their understanding of a Messiah is that, no, the Messiah is not going to suffer and die in the way that Jesus keeps telling us, that doesn't fit with our idea of a Messiah. And so here on the Mount of Transfiguration, God through his son reveals the glory of Jesus to the disciples and he says, listen to him when he tells you that he's going to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. And so three divinely inspired authors have intentionally linked the glory of Jesus as symbolized in the transfiguration and the death of Jesus as mentioned in verse 7 when it says, listen to him. And therefore we must conclude that the glory of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus are inseparable. In other words, Jesus' glory is seen most clearly in his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. But why is that the case? Why is it the case that his glory is seen most clearly in his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension? Well, it's because in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, in his pain, in his shame, in his dishonor and humiliation, when Jesus took upon himself the guilt of sin of all those who would believe in him, and God was forsaking him to death, Jesus Christ showed how infinitely valuable God's glory is, that such a loss should be suffered to demonstrate its worth. And if that concept excites you, and if you want to learn more of that concept, I just gave you a summary of Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. I encourage you to read it. And so the transfiguration shows us who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God, and he had to suffer. But suffering is not his ultimate destiny. Rather, Jesus' ultimate destiny is to be glorified so that he could then glorify the Father, as, as we read in John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. And all of that happens through his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension.
And so, as we reflect on this transfiguration moment, we see these parallels with the Old Testament. We see the meaning of the glory of Jesus, in addition to just the fact of the glory of Jesus, or the revelation of the glory of Jesus. We're now prepared to ask three concluding questions. First, what is your truth? And I'm not necessarily asking that question, but that's the question that's all around us, isn't it? This is what we're told, and it's phrased just like this. What is your truth? And do you know where that question came from, by the way? It came from Oprah. In the 90s, when she had her guests on, she sat them down, you know, big celebrities, and she asked them, what is your truth? And that was the show. And we've picked it up, and now we ask this of ourselves. This is now the question we ask one, well, what's your truth? And you may hear that question, and you may say, well, I'm a son of post-modernity. I'm a son of cynicism. And so for me, seeing is believing. And so Peter, James, and John saw the glory of Jesus. That's great for them. But unless I see Jesus transfigured, I'm not believing it. And Peter speaks directly to the son of cynicism in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Because in 2 Peter chapter 1, you'll remember, in verses 16 through 18, Peter is describing his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. I read it earlier. But then, once he's done describing that, he says this in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention. And so Peter describes the Mount of Transfiguration. He's seen the glory of Jesus. It changed him forever because he saw the glory of Jesus. But then he says, oh, but by the way, we have the prophetic word of God more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. And so if you are here today and you say, okay, I'm not going to believe in the glory of Jesus until I'm on the Mount of Transfiguration and I can see him with my own two eyes, then realize that Peter, who was on the Mount, who did see him and who is divinely inspired of the Spirit, as he writes these words, has told you, no, 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 don't go seeking after your own Mount of Transfiguration experience. Instead, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. And so, maybe you haven't seen Christ transfigured in this life. But you have the more fully confirmed Word of God. And what we're told is that the reliability of the Bible supersedes even a big religious experience that you might have. And so, you have the prophetic Word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. Next question, what is your hope? See, the first question is, what is your truth? The second question is, what is your hope? Hope is the thing that keeps you going. And so, if your hope is winning the lottery, like we mentioned earlier, then for you, that means the hope of riches keeps you going, and it takes you from one week to the next. So you go in, you buy your lottery ticket, then you wait for the day, you check your numbers, you don't win, but you say, ah, oh, maybe next week. And then you go, you buy a ticket, you wait for the numbers, you look, you don't win, and you say, ah, oh, but maybe next week. And so what is it that keeps you going? It's the hope of riches. It's the hope of winning the lottery. 
That's what hope is. Hope is the thing that keeps you going. Well, Christian hope is very different from buying a lottery ticket. Christian hope is to see Jesus Christ face to face. Our hope is to one day have the experience that Peter, James, and John had. We long for this reality. We long for exactly what Peter, James, and John got. We long for the day when our faith becomes sight. And it is that that keeps us going day to day. That is one of the spurs to a persevering faith. That's what keeps Christians going. The hope of seeing Christ in his glory face to face. And of course, when we see him face to face, we'll see him in his resurrected body. But how exactly does that keep Christians going? How does the hope of seeing the resurrected Christ face to face keep us going? Well, there's at least two ways that keeps us going. There's at least two ways that's a spur or perseverance to our faith. The first is the vindication of our faith. The desire to see our faith vindicated and proven right, that moves us forward. And not vindicated as in, I'm right and you're wrong, Twitter war kind of thing. But vindicated as in, I really want to see it. I want to see it. I want to know it because I've seen it. And the second way this hope keeps Christians going is because of our desire for greater glory. We long to see Christ's heavenly glory because we long for a glory that bursts beyond the borders of our world. And so one day we will see Christ in his resurrected glory. And we will do so as those who have received our own transfiguration. That's what we're told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Listen to it. You're going to have your own transfiguration. We're told, we are God's children now, and what will we be, or excuse me, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You see that? We shall be like him. And so just as Christ now reigns as king with his resurrected body in all of its glory, we too will reign with him as co-heirs with our resurrected bodies. So the first question is, what is your truth? The second question is, what is your hope? And the third question is, what is your glory? That's what this passage is about. This is a glory passage. What is your glory? You have to realize life is all about glory. For every single person that walks this earth, life is all about glory. And since life is all about glory, that means our definition of glory is important. And our definition of glory can't start with something like winning the lottery. Our definition of glory must start with the God of the Bible. And there's really two ways to define glory. You can either start a definition of glory with yourself at the center, or you can start a definition of glory with God at the center. When your definition of glory is built around yourself, and it's built around the pleasures of the sinful world, then that means you are glory confused, just like the disciples are glory confused in this section of Mark. But when your definition of glory is built around God, when it's built around His power and His wisdom, his righteousness, his love, his grace, and his son, 
and His cross. Then you are glory clear. And so there's two ways to approach glory. There's two ways to pursue glory, either with you at the center or God at the center. And those are two very different approaches. Because when you're at the center of your pursuit of glory, then that means, children, when you go to school, you want to walk into the classroom and you want all of the other children to praise you and celebrate you. And you want to receive that adulation. Or maybe at home, it means that you want your brothers and sisters to praise you and celebrate you and tell you how great you are. Well, that's a confused glory. That's with glory where you're at the center. Or confused glory with you at the center might look like you walk into the office and everyone tells you how great you are, tells you how this whole place would fall apart without you and you are holding it together. And then they bow down to you. Or whatever it is that you fantasize in your warped vision of glory. When, when you have a vision of glory with you at the center, that is glory confusion. But instead, we need to have a definition of glory that starts with God at the center. And what that means is, is that everyone's bowing down to God. And we're there with them, bowing down to God. And that is the glory we desire. And so we all need what the disciples need. We need rescue by glory. We need glory clarity. And as we close, I call on you this week to reflect on glory, to reflect on your definition of glory, and not just the intellectual definition that you might write on a paper, but the definition that lives in your heart. Which definition of glory is living in your heart right now? The one that has you at the center, or the one that has God through His Son? at the center. And when you look at your definition of glory and you see that your definition of glory is one of glory confused with you at the center, then I call on you to surrender your catalog of carnal glories for the greater glory which is found in Jesus Christ. And so cross the border of your own glory for the glory of Christ because as Colossians 3:4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.